0: It's a blessing. Let's get our Bibles out, open to 1 Corinthians 13. You'll find that on page 1321 in that pew Bible there in front of you, so you can follow along with us. We are studying our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we are calling this section that we're in right now, uh, Forming Our Faith, Family, in the Gospel, because it's It's about how the church functions together and what the Bible teaches us about uh, the way that we uh, do church together, love each other, and the way that we obey the commands that God has given to us together. And that's what it's all about. And so that's why today we're going to go out together into our community and we're going to be a blessing in our community. And so uh, if you. Maybe, you know, you weren't here last week. You don't know anything about it. It's okay. We have enough food for everybody. If you just go right down there to the fellowship hall, we'll be glad to feed you after community group. We'll put you with a group of people. You don't need any training. You don't need to know anything. We're just, we're we're for our community. So we're giving the gift of the gospel to our community. We don't want anything from them. We just want something for them. Amen. And so... It's just, It's a very beautiful, simple, biblical process. And by the way, as you go down, as you make your way down uh, to eat today, just be grateful for those who are serving and cooking. Thank them. Be gracious to them for all the hard work they've put in this weekend to get ready for today. And then when you are picking up those bags... Uh, and from those that are under the tents there working, be grateful and thank them. It's, you have no idea how much work the team has put in on organizing all of these addresses and neighborhoods and streets. And, I mean, listen, be grateful and thankful because your brothers and sisters have labored to make this uh, so simple and organized for us. So. Let's be grateful for them. Amen. Let's pray, and then we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 13 together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for those joining us online. We're grateful that we're able to be together this day uh, for this purpose, to look at this word that you've given us, perfect, inerrant, in every way, relevant to our immediate Position and place in life, Lord, we pray that you'll use it mightily in our hearts. It is so good to be loved and known by you. Help us to see you this morning through these words. Help us to know you in a closer and more intimate way, God. Thank you for each one here. And for the potential of this moment together we give you all the glory and praise in advance. We pray for ears to hear, hearts to receive, and courage to walk out these truths for your glory. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen. 1 Corinthians 13, it's going to I told you this is not a passage you can rush through. So they're familiar words, but maybe not in the right context. So let's read 1 Corinthians 13 The Bible says, Though I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could move mountains or remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long. And is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity. But rejoices in truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never fails. Now what we found last week by looking at the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13 is the shocking reality that we could be talented and even appear successful in ministry and not even be a Christian. And we see this all throughout uh, the Scriptures. We see many instances where God empowers people to do things, He gifts them, He uses uh uh, the giftedness that he can give in order for them to do things and to oftentimes be a blessing to other people. Now I want you to I want you to realize how significant this understanding is because there have been multiple times where, unfortunately, over the course of the past twenty something years that I've ministered here, where people have come to me or called me and said, "Listen, pastor, I need you to help me out here. I've." I've been a part of this church, you know, all my life. Or maybe you're a part of this church now. And you say, the church I grew up in, that I learned about God, where I received Christ. You know, the pastor that was there that whole time. Well, we just found out that the whole time he was a fraud. That the whole time he was having an affair with multiple women in the church or whatever the case may be. And so now suddenly they're questioning their salvation, they're questioning their relationship with God because so much of it was framed by this person who turned out to be a fraud. And what do I tell them? Your relationship is not based on the vessel God used. It's based on Him, right? And so we have to understand this truth and for so many reasons. Because what we do is we get very confused about this and we equate giftedness with godliness. And that's wrong. It doesn't mean that giftedness is not godliness, it just means that we need to understand how gifts disguise themselves as fruit. And so last week we talked about the passage in Matthew chapter 7 where people uh, in the last day stand before God and say, you know, didn't I, didn't we cast out demons in your name and prophesy in your name and we did all these amazing things in your name. Remember that conversation? In your name. And Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you. All your giftedness, all the things you did in the name of God that were no doubt done in the context of the church. Depart from me, I never knew you. It's very important to understand. So, if you have your listening guides, this morning we'll, we'll remind ourselves with this truth. Spiritual gifts can operate in an unredeemed life. Spiritual fruit, on the other hand, can only operate in a redeemed life. And so we have to make absolutely sure that we understand 1 Corinthians 13 before we get to 14. Because trust me, when we get to 14, and we start having some conversations about some serious error and craziness that's going on in the church, it's going to be clear to you the reason why that is, is because they didn't take the time to understand 13. And they just jumped over into all this nonsense, and there's the confusion. Okay? Now, how do I know? Spiritual fruit can only operate in a redeemed life. You know, I don't want you to just take my word for it. I mean, how do we know that? We know that throughout all the teaching of Scripture. Listen, Jesus says, he said, I'm the vine. Remember in John 15, he says, as the branch cannot bear fruit in itself. It cannot. We're the branches. It is impossible. The only way to bear fruit is to be connected to the vine, right? Yes. So in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 13, remember, though I have this gift of prophecy, I understand all mysteries. I mean, these are amazing mountaintop, unbelievable giftedness. At the very end, even though I could remove mountains, I am nothing. You see that? Nothing. Nothing. So I apologize. I know it's been a long week for a lot of you. And I am t- you know it's it's I wish that it would have been different, but it it's the only way we could do this. I left you hanging big time last week. But unless you wanted a 2-hour sermon, it was the only way it was going to roll and you know I'm I'm down for a 2-hour sermon, although it would throw our children's ministry into a complete and utter panic but we have to answer this million dollar question we have to figure this out what is the proof that a person has in fact been indwelt by supernatural power what what is this what does the fruit look like Well, the answer is love. But that's insufficient. Because what do I mean when I say love? What does the Bible mean when the Bible says love? What do you mean when you say love? Because are we talking about the love described in love songs? Are we talking about the love that we have for ice cream? At least I do. Amen. I'm hoping we get some of that today, but I don't know. They always go, well, it's cold outside. It's never a bad time for ice cream. I could be in Antarctica. I'm down with some bluebell. Let's get it on. But what kind of love are we talking about? The love we have for, you know, is it the love we're going to celebrate in a couple weeks for Valentine's Day? Is that what we're talking about? By the way, can we just do something together as a church? Let's all do this together, Okay. Let's be the only church in America where no one in our fellowship says Valentine's because you're driving me crazy. It is not Valentine. It's an end, people, an end, okay? I got to focus or we're never going to get done so what is this love? See, Paul, listen, Paul doesn't want the Corinthians to be confused. That's what this whole chapter is about. He doesn't want us to be confused. So he goes into great detail to make sure that we understand. See, what he does is he begins with this, this barrage of things that love is. Love is it's patient. It's kind. It rejoices in truth. It always protects. It always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. He says the things that love is not, it's not envious or boastful or proud or dishonoring or self-seeking or easily angered or doesn't keep a record of wrongs, doesn't delight in evil. Now, what is this? Is this a checklist of behaviors? Is what we need to do today, we'll go through these one by one, so that we understand them and we can all just go, okay, I need to work on this, I need to work on this, I need to work on this. Now, let's just think for a second. That's what everyone wants to make it. Does that make any sense to you? If we're trying to describe, if we're trying to understand what a supernatural love is, if we're trying to understand what what does it look like when a person has been indwelt by supernatural power, it clearly cannot be a checklist of behaviors. That wouldn't make any sense. Right? All right, let's think about this. So what is happening here? What, what is this all about? Okay, here's how we're going to go into this. Understand, love is not a behavior. Love is an experience. This love that is is the Bible's talking about in 1 Corinthians 13 is not a behavior. It is an experience. And here's how we know that. Notice what the Bible doesn't say. The Bible doesn't say love must be patient. Love must be kind. Love must be. It's not... It's not being descriptive about what love must be. It also doesn't say you must be patient, you must be kind, you, it doesn't say that. Paul does not use that, that way of communicating at all. What Paul does is he personalizes love. Now, watch, remember 1 John 4 8, the Bible says God is love, right? He is love. He is the essence of love. If you want to know what love is, that's God. So what that means is we could then take God's name and implant it into 1 Corinthians 13 everywhere the word love appears. So it would sound like this. God suffers long in his kind. God does not envy. God does not parade himself. He is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek his own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but he rejoices in the truth. You see? Yeah. So why does the Bible do this? What is God trying to get us to understand here? Well... Before love is something you do, it is someone you meet. That's why. Now, I'm going to show you how impossible this is to be a list of behaviors. And I thought about how in the world am I going to explain this to you? I mean, we could just look at it and we could say, you know, okay, uh suffers long kind doesn't envy we could start going through this you know and but what what I have you ever seen that sh- crazy show uh American ninja warrior which is the whole title is ridiculous if you're Amer- but anyway but it's where these uh, super fanatical people have to go through this crazy obstacle course. And, uh, and here's, you know, I mean, they're incredibly disciplined. But here's what is intriguing about the show, is that the obstacle course is, is something that the average person walking around could never possibly do. And the thing about it is, what makes it so difficult is that it gets progressively more difficult. So not only are you getting more worn out as you go through these different obstacles, but each one is way harder than the one before. So that's what makes it so difficult. And so like the, the I think it went on for a s- multiple seasons before somebody even ever made it to the end. You know, the, the very final thing is some insane thing called Mount Kilimanjaro or Fujisaka or some kind of a thing, which is, again, it's. American Ninja Warrior, but we're trying to get to Mount Fujisaka or whatever. But the point is, when you get to, I mean, you get to the end, and then somebody has to like, you know, you got to climb up a 10-story glass wall covered with Crisco with your arms tied behind your back. I mean, it's just crazy, right? Well, that's, this passage is kind of like American Ninja Warrior. Let me show you. What I'm trying to say is, is that as you begin in verse 4, what's happening here is that these are getting sequentially more difficult. So that when you get to verse 7, that's Mount Kilimanjaro or Fujisaka or whatever. I'm not even understanding what it's called. Right? Okay, look. look. First of all, just quickly, I don't have time to get into this, but we'll... We'll talk about it. Maybe we'll uh, spend a whole Sunday talking about it. Maybe we'll do it in a later date. But look at the first two things. Suffers long, patience, or be kind. The first two. The first two are how we relate to other people. Then there's a shift. And what follows is, look, envy does not parade itself. It's not puffed up, does not behave rudely those are all descriptors of how we relate to ourselves yes those are external behaviors that are driven by some internal confusion uh-huh see if you're jealous that doesn't have anything to do with what you're jealous about it has to do with you you got that yes so what I'm saying is it starts out with how we relate to each other. That's the easy part. Then it moves into how do we relate to ourselves. That's the more difficult part. And it gets more and more difficult as we go. And when you get to seven, it is meant to just prove to you that this is not a list of behaviors because you utterly, I am Utterly incapable of even embarking on anything that verse 7 says. Look. Look at verse 7. Bears all things. Love bears all things. Let's think about this for a second. What does that mean to bear, to to carry the weight of all things? So this supernatural love carries the weight of all things. That means I'll carry the weight of... Of forgiving you no matter what. No matter what. I'll carry the burden. I'll eat the I'll eliminate the debt. To bear all things, to to always protect, no matter how undeserving a person may be. To bear any offense. Any offense. In the loved one. That's to bear all things. You see, the thing is, is that when you look at this, you realize the willingness to bear all things is unaffected by the person's behavior or sinfulness or deservedness. To bear. All things. See, this is how the Bible starts to make sense to us. Because we, we, we realize, for example, in 1 Peter 4. And above all things have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Right? Well, what is a multitude? A multitude is an incalculable number. That's what a multitude is. Which is why in Proverbs chapter 10, the Bible says... Love covers all sins because that's what a multitude of sins is. So no matter what the loved one does, a love that bears all things doesn't stop. You see, if there's a limit to your love, you don't bear all things. You see this? Come on, because what we're going to do is we're, we're trying to climb a glass wall covered with Crisco with our arms tied behind our back. Who can do that? What about believes all things? Bears all things, believes all things. What does that mean? Or maybe your translation says trust, always trust. To believe all things, to trust all things. This this love, a love that, that believes all things, it stays committed no matter how costly because it believes in and it trusts in all things. Some of you remember I've used this illustration before about a man named Charles Blondin. Blondin was famous in the 1850s because he strung a tightrope across Niagara Falls from the United States to the Canadian side, and he was a he would do all sorts of crazy antics, walking back and forth between on this road. I mean, the wind's blowing, you know what I mean? It's like a gazillion feet down to your death, and people are on both sides. Everyone would come out and watch him, and he'd be carrying on. He he, he went across it in a sack. I don't even, I mean, is he insane? I don't know what's going on. He's like one of those sacks that you have a sack race in. So he kind of hopped across the thing in a sack. He went across it in stilts. One time he rode a bicycle across it. The craziest thing he did was he carried this little stove thing, like a camping stove, and made an omelet as he's walking over Niagara Falls. But he did it. And people would just come out to see him. And so it it just became this big show. And so in the summer of 1859, there's a crowd there as always, you know, packed on both sides, you know, just can't wait to see what crazy craziness he's going to do. He goes across to the Canadian side, backwards, gets a wheelbarrow, and then, then comes back across to the American side with this wheelbarrow. Of course, everyone's just cheering and cheering and, you know, like, well, you know, you're just amazing, you're great, oh, you know. Everyone's 100% convinced that this guy can do anything on this tightrope, and it's going to be completely safe. And then he says, do you believe that I can do this with the wheelbarrow? And they're like, yes, yes, yes. And he said, okay, I need a volunteer to get in the wheelbarrow. (laughs) Guess who volunteered? Nobody. Are you insane? Nobody. Now, they cheered. They believed. They are convinced until it costs something. See? See, you can say, oh, I trust in that. Oh, I believe in that. Do you get in the wheelbarrow? See, everyone wants to say they, you know, Oh, they believe in something. Oh, they trust in something. I mean, anyone can talk about love until it requires them to bear all things or believe all things. Then we got a different story, see? Yeah. Then he says, hopes all things. Hopes all things. See, if we're not already sliding down the glass wall, we're about to slide now. What is hope? Whenever you read about hope in the Bible, what do you notice about the way the Bible teaches us about hope? Hope is always connected to joy. Because hope and joy are 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 inseparable aren't they look i'll show you for example romans chapter 5 our lord jesus christ through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of god see joy and hope or what about what paul says in romans 15 now may the god of hope fill you with all joy And peace and believing. You see that? They always go together. Why is that? Well it's it's very simple. If you just think about what, what even what we. You and me just understand naturally about hope. Our hope is what our heart delights in. This is what I know. I don't know about your hope. But I know some things about it. I don't know what you hope in. I know what I hope you hope in. But I don't really know what you hope in. But I know that no one in this room hopes in something they dread. That wouldn't make any sense. See, to hope in something, is it it automatically has to be connected to something that you desire, that you find joy in, that you like, that you, that's what hope is. You know, you don't hope that you stump your toe like crazy on the corner of the thing and, you know, don't say a cuss word. Oh, you're hoping in things that you delight in. See, some of you are hoping that you'll, you'll, you'll be wealthy one day. Some of you are hoping that you'll be married someday. Some of you are hoping that you'll stay married. And I'm hoping that too. Amen. Some of you might be hoping that you don't stay married. Because you're not delighting in your marriage anymore. You see? See, the key to hope is delight. And so this is why, this is what, this is. is, Listen. Real love is not based on what we get in return. That's just ordinary love. We talked about this a few months ago. No, no, this supernatural love that is described in 1 Corinthians 13, it simply delights in the one loved. Not in what the loved one can do, not in what the loved one can provide, not in the way the loved one behaves. Not in the way they look. Not in the what they, not, no, no characteristic about them. Just delights in them. Hopes in them. That's what, that's what this kind of love is. You see, it's not what you can do for me. It's just you. It's just you. And this is what the Bible is showing us In in passages like Psalm 27. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek. Well, what is it? Is it all the things God can do for me? Is it all the things? No, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and behold the beauty of the Lord. You see, that's love. That's love. It's 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 not wanting God for what God can do. It's wanting God just for God. Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. See, life might go bad. It might go south. It might, be, it might not be what I expect. My, my, my expectations may be shattered. What my, my hopes and my dreams may fade away. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see that? See, on the, on the back of your, your listening, God, one of the questions that I, that I posed to you to, to talk about in community group today is that so oftentimes when life gets hard, we get, we get frustrated with God. What does that tell us about the way you love God? Hmm? That's not the Psalm 27 picture. See, I told you, we all, we're all sliding down the glass now, aren't we? This isn't something that you and me can just muster up to do. This is a whole different... There, there is, listen, there's nobody in this room... There's nobody in this country, there's nobody on this planet who has ever loved their spouse this way, who has ever loved their children this way, who has, it is not humanly possible. This is a supernatural love that can only, so we can love our spouse this way and we can love our kids this way if we've met love personally, if we've experienced love. You see, what what this is teaching us is that God doesn't bring us happiness. He is our happiness. He is our happiness. And this is why so many people will be shocked and dismayed when their time on this earth is over. Because they've convinced themselves of so many things based on the wrong metric. I'm just challenging you. Listen. I'm not telling you this morning that if you get discouraged or frustrated with God when things don't go right, that you're lost. I'm not telling you that. I'm telling you that if you get frustrated with God when things don't go your way, you better do some work. You need to examine some things. You need to wrestle through your salvation. You need to figure some things out. Because you do not want to roll the dice. Of eternity here. Will you love God? Maybe what you need to do is go back. And study through the book of Job. The whole book of Job. Is about this very principle right here. You can listen to all the messages we We preach through the book of Job and study through it and and get your mind around this. Will you love God if everything else fails around you? Don't just intellectually say yes. Because it could be eternally disastrous for you. Admit it. You get frustrated with God. Why? Why? See, this is why Paul then goes to endures all things. Endures all things. See, Paul wants us to know, God wants us to understand that true love it outlasts our failures. Because we we fail a lot. And this love, this this Mount Kilimanjaro love, it outlasts our failures. Because here's the truth. The, The truth is, Is that all of us want to be loved for who we are. We have this internal burning desire to just be loved for who we are. We, we all want that. We don't, none of us has a desire in our heart to be loved for what we bring to the table. No, we all want it. We long for it. But can I tell you something? None of us can give that. We all want it, but, but you can't give it, and I can't give it. We want something we can't give. We were born with this desire, this, this want inside of us. We can't give it. the good news is we can receive it. Listen, this is what the Bible says in Romans 5. Now, hope does not disappoint. Again, see, we're understanding this concept of hope because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. Now, who poured out the love of God in our hearts? You see that? Which means... Only a redeemed person has this love. It is impossible for an unredeemed heart to possess this love because the love is only poured out one way, through the Holy Spirit. And the definitive, defining mark of salvation is the Holy Spirit, not giftedness. You see this? So we can't give it, but we can receive it. Now once we receive it, game changer See how that works? Yeah. Now the gospel starts to take hold. It starts to take root. We start to understand, hold on. Now, what is the what does this mean? Listen, in our In our worst moment, our lowest point, our filthiest, grossest, most disgusting behavioral point in our life, our our guiltiest, most condemnable, least deserving moment of our existence, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Have you ever thought about this before? Jesus didn't say, God, forgive them. In the the moment of, of all of this weight bearing down on him, he refers to God the Father in the most loving, intimate way he can. He says, Father, not distant, far off God, not some some deity that's disconnected or doesn't care. No, he says, Father, my Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. See, this love that is on display in the gospel It endures. See, it doesn't fail. It endures the wrath of God. Look at what it's passed through. And why? Why? Why why did Jesus do this? Why did he do this? Why Why did he commit himself to this? Why did he take this upon himself? Why did he willingly choose to suffer? Why? What is the purpose behind it? What can you give God in return for His love for you? Nothing. You don't bring anything to the table. I brought zero to the table. He didn't say, oh, forgive them for their, you know, they're not that bad. No, no, that wasn't the case. It was in our worst moment. We we can't bring him anything in return for his love. We have nothing to offer. So, why would God do this? Why would he redeem me and you for nothing? That is supernatural love. Here's what the Bible says in 1 Peter 3. For Christ suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust. Why? Oh, because they're going to bring him so much joy. Because they're going to do all these amazing things for him. Because they're such wonderful people. No, they got nothing. The only reason is they're going to, so I could bring them to God. You see how the gospel flipped this around? and says, Jesus, are you ready for this? Jesus loves you for you, just you. You can't do anything. You don't bring him anything. You don't perform anything. There's nothing about you. It's just you. How amazing is that? Jesus loves us for nothing in return. For nothing. This is why he ends in verse 8 with love never fails. Because listen, listen, listen. If love could fail, it would have failed on me. If, if this love was failable, I would have never passed. No, see, if love fails... It's not this kind of love. See, love fails all the time. But not this love. Our love, our conditional love, it fails all the time. It has no chance. You know why? Because all of the conditions that we place on our love are all frivolous and temporary. At some point, every condition in our love will fail. Every person that we love Will come to the point in their life where they can no longer meet the conditions of our love, or where we can no longer meet the conditions of their love. It's it's going to happen. It cannot go any other way. Conditional love. It always fails, eventually. See, see, you might say, "Oh, I don't know," you know, I I, I I've been. You know, we, I've been married to my spouse for 50 years, and the whole time has been, you're delusional, but anyway, we'll go with it. And it's just been amazing the whole time, and you're probably drunk now, but anyway, we're going to go with it. And it's always just been blissful and wonderful. Okay, great. And let me ask you a question. And how exactly are, are you planning on dying together? Hundreds and hundreds of funerals. Guess what? Somebody's going first. Somebody's leaving you. And guess what? When I'm doing the funeral for your spouse, it's going to be a bummer. Yes, it is. Not for them if they're saved, but it is for you because we're stuck here. And guess what? It won't be blissful in that moment. See, what I'm saying is... <laughs> remember, remember 1 John 4.10... This is love, not that we love God. No, that's conditional love. That's ordinary love. No, what love is, is that He loved us. That is the essence of love because we bring nothing to the table, yet He loved us anyway. Remember Luke 14 or Luke 15 4. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. And doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? The lost sheep, now. The dumbest one of the bunch. Toby was too stupid to follow his 99 cousins. To go to the same place he goes every day. He couldn't just. He had to get distracted. And wander somewhere. Who knows what. After all that. The stupidest one of the bunch. So of those hundred sheep. Which one's. Least deserving. Which one's hardest to love. Which one. Is most rebellious? Which one is the greatest failure? Which one has the poorest performance? And who does the shepherd pursue? Now here's the rest of the story. See the Bible says when he gets him he brings him home. Remember that? So now the hundred sheep are all back together again. Are those hundred sheep the same? Think about it. Are those hundred sheep the same? No. They're not the same. Not even close. Mm -mm. No. There's one sheep in that flock that is radically different than the other ninety-nine. Because there's only one that's experienced love. The other 99 might have heard about what happened to him. The other 99 might have heard Toby's testimony, his story, but they hadn't experienced it. They hadn't felt it. They don't. They might think the shepherd's good. They might and think of all the reasons the other 99 obey the shepherd. Some of them want to get better food. Some of them want to be at the front of the line, have a better place to sleep. Some of them want the shepherd to like them more. Some of them, you could have all all these different motives within the flock, but there's one drastically different sheep in that flock after that moment because only one has personally met love, experienced love, only that one. You see, you, listen, 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 only a sheep who has been lost Can know this love. This love is exclusive. The love of the shepherd, this love is exclusive. Now, the shepherd does good things. Watches over the flock, feeds the flock, cares for the flock. The grace of God and the gifts of God, as I said last week, are spread across all of mankind. And aren't we thankful for that? But only one sheep can know this love and experience this love. And the only way to do it is you have to have been lost. See, if you're not dumb and and ignorant and and short-sighted and distractible and... Well, then you, don't, you can't experience it. If you're good and smart and capable and, and fine on your own, then all you'll ever know is what it's like to be one of the 99. There's going to be a lot of people stand before God. And they're going to say, God, look, I, I was part of the 99 all my life. I, I stayed where I was supposed to go. I did what I was supposed to do. And everything's going to be based on you. And he's going to say, Depart from me. You never experienced my love, you never showed my love, because you never would admit that you were lost. But you see, once we've been brought back home, this is how we can the the one sheep now, you see, he he can he can love people that offend him. He can love people that are different than him. He can love people that he has no reason to love, no benefit to gain. because of what he's experienced from his shepherd you see because now that he's been brought back home he's not he's not seeking anything from those he loves because he has need of nothing he's just seeking something for those he loves That's why we do things the way we do them here. We will not go out into our community wanting something from them. We want something for them. We want them to experience what we experienced when we were lost. So what we have been taught this morning is that we were not created to read stories about love. We are created to live stories that embody his love. We're not reading about love. We're living love. That's what we're doing. You see, that's what pilgrimage is. It's a group of people in a family that embark on the mission together, that live love together. We're like an army of Tobys. Amen.